Well, good evening, everybody. If the uh, guys will come down, we'll take up our evening offering here. All right. Join me in prayer. Uh, Father, just bless this offering we're about to take. Let it be used to further your word and your kingdom out into the world we live in. Let us be good stewards of it, not just at home, not just across the street, but around this globe, so that no matter what happens, your name gets spread to all the earth. We ask this in your name. Amen. All right. Well, we are in part 30 of our continuing series on the book of Hebrews. And we are now into our third week looking at what is probably the most famous chapter in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 11, uh, known generally as the Hall of Fame of Faith. A just long look at all of the massively important figures in biblical history that really influence how we think about God, what we think about when we think about people of faith, just these incredible characters. And then we have tonight's topic. Tonight, we have a guy that we know next to nothing about. And as someone who had to prepare a sermon on this guy, let me tell you, there is not much to say. But by the grace of God, we can always find something in the smallest bit of Scripture. And so if you'll turn with me to Hebrews 11, we're going to be looking at verses 5 and 6 tonight. And so the person we have in question, and I find it funny that the two most obscure characters in all of Scripture both have major roles in the book of Hebrews. So you've got Melchizedek, which we've talked about a lot leading up to this point, and then we have tonight's topic, the man named Enoch. And so let's just dig in and see what the author of Hebrews has to say here. So starting in verse 5, we see this. By faith Enoch was taken up, so that he should not see death. And he was not found, because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And so, without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and he rewards those who seek him. Okay, that's kind of cool. Someone in the Bible who it says didn't die. That's kind of neat. So who was Enoch? Well, the name Enoch appears 13 times in the Bible. And we see it referring to three separate entities. The first one is the son of Cain. And if you've been following along in our D group studies, you've probably recently went through this chapter as we begin the beginning of Genesis. So Cain, the son of Adam, had a son himself after the whole incident with Abel, 
and he named him Enoch. Uh, the second thing we see in relationship to the name Enoch is a city. So the Genesis records that after Cain had a son, he founded a city, and he named this city Enoch after his own son. Well, there is a third figure, and that is the, let me see if I get this correct, great, 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 great grandson of Adam, or a little easier to say, he's the father of Methuselah. Methuselah, of course, being famously the character in history to have lived the longest, some 900 and something years. So he's the longest recording living human that we have. Well, his dad is Enoch. And so about this, this is the guy we're going to talk about. And about him, we know this. He appears in a list of Adam's descendants in Genesis 5. So as it goes through Seth and his sons, we get to eventually Enoch. And about him, it says this in, verses, uh, in Genesis 5, verses 21 to 24. So when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Oops. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons of daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And that's it. After that, it goes on to talk about Methuselah. We don't really see any more about Enoch here. So as you continue on, if you just do a search in a Bible app or whatever through a concordance, and you look for the word Enoch, you will see he also appears a couple of times, uh, once in 1 Chronicles 1, and second time in Luke 3. And in both of those passages, it is just a rote list of Adam's genealogy. So it doesn't even go into the detail of Genesis. It just goes on to say, and the son of Adam was Seth. I forget some of the names in between there. Uh, Lamech, Enoch, Methuselah, down the line. Same thing in Luke 3. You see the same thing. It's just, here's a bunch of people in this lineage. Move on. The only other real mention we see of Enoch in all of Scripture is in Jude uh, 14 and 15. And there Jude ascribes a prophecy to him. And that prophecy reads this. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, seventh son, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and convict all the ungodly of all their deeds. Wow, I say that a lot of times of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. I think that's probably the most use of ungodly in a couple of verses in all of Scripture. But regardless, that's it. I have literally read you every passage of Scripture about Enoch. That's all we've got. But... That doesn't mean we can't get something from it. But first, why is such an interestingly vague character in Hebrews 11? Because before him, we see Abel. After him, we see Noah. We go to Abraham, Moses, all of these massive figures in faith, in people who did amazing, wonderful, major things for God. But here in the middle of all this, 
we have a couple of sentences about this guy that which there are only a couple of more sentences in history recorded about. Well, first and foremost, I'll just throw out there, he has a unique and interesting story. Despite being so short, despite us not really having any more information about him, I really think he's got kind of an interesting story here. And we can imply a few things about his life from, from what we see in Genesis and what we get later in Hebrews. So first, I'll say Enoch was a righteous man. Why else would he be afforded this luxury of being in such a pantheon of great figures in the Bible as Hebrews 11 if he didn't have something of note about him? It says he pleased God. It says he walked with God. We don't see that come up a whole lot. So I feel very confident in saying Enoch was a righteous man. So on that note of Enoch is said to have walked with God twice. Two different times in Genesis 5, it records the phrase, Enoch walked with God. Now this is interesting. And I actually did a lot of word studies on this. I did a lot of searching. So the first way this is different, uh, Enoch's fathers and Enoch's descendants were all described as merely lived. So... When we look back at Genesis, it says this. He lived 65 years. He walked with God after he fathered Methuselah for 300 years. And then it says, goes on to say, Enoch walked with God for he was, and he was not, for God took him. Everybody else in this genealogy list, it simply says they lived for so many years, fathered a child, lived so many more years. Move on to the next person. They lived so many years, fathered a child, lived for so many years past that. For Enoch, though, it says he walked with God for 300 years. This idea of walking with God appears roughly 160 times in Scripture. If you search the phrase, walk with God, you get about 170 results, but some of those are kind of nonsense, which you'll get doing searches like that. You'll find stuff like, and the lame were raised to walk in the presence of God. It doesn't really fit the theme. It just happens to have the right combination of words in the verse. But the idea of walking with God appears 160 times. Almost every one of those is someone being commanded to walk with God. Things like walk right in the presence of God. Make sure everything you do, you are walking with God. These are commands. These are being told to do it. What's unique about Enoch, there are only two people in the Bible who are described as actually having walked with God. The first one is Enoch, and the second one is Noah. So both of these occurrences are in Genesis 5, let alone the fact that there's only two of them. So with Enoch, and Noah is said to have walked with God in comparison with his wicked generation. And as that is one of the earliest Bible stories anybody has ever taught, what happened to his generation? God hit the reset button with a flood. So when it says Noah was walking with God, it meant he was the only good person left 
And so just looking at a, actually, I'm sorry, I said it was in verse 5. It's actually in chapter 6. So you'll see on your handout, Genesis 6, 9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And then the phrase, Noah walked with God. So he was a righteous man. He was someone who walked with God, a fairly unique designator in the scripture. Third, why is he in Hebrews 11? Well, let's get to the elephant in the room. According to scripture, Enoch did not die. God took him directly to heaven. Now, you can kind of get that from Hebrews, I mean from Genesis, but the author of Hebrews pretty much spells it out pretty plainly. He was not found because God took him away. He did not experience death. This is nothing new. Even in the first century when Hebrews was being written, we find most Jews who would have cared believed Enoch was taken straight to heaven. That's just kind of how the story went. That's what they believed. Uh, he didn't really add anything new. This is not some reinterpretation we see in the New Testament, like we do in some things. A uh, famous one is Peter's sermon in the beginning of Book of, Book of Acts at Pentecost. He kind of reinterprets some of those passages in a new way. But here we don't have that. He is taking from a very solid first century background. And so... To give you an idea of what I'm talking about, let's look at Josephus. We've talked about him a little bit in this study up to this point. So just as a refresher, Josephus was a Jewish person living in the first century. He was also a Roman citizen. He was a Roman sympathizer, actually. And his great contribution to the world, in my mind and a lot of people's minds, is the fact that he wrote a non-biblical history of the Jewish people. Uh, two of them, in fact, his antiquities and then the wars of the Jews. And the whole idea behind what Josephus was doing was, well, this is around the time the temple's getting destroyed. His people are suffering because they're a bunch of whiny people who love to rebel. And Josephus' whole point is, please don't kill my people. We're good. We're ancient. We believe a lot of things you guys like. And so he's trying to explain his people to the Roman Empire. And in one of these, he says, as I've quoted here, And indeed, as to Elijah, and as to Enoch, who was before the deluge, it is written in the sacred books that they disappeared, but so that nobody knew they died. So here we have a non-biblical resource equating what happened to Enoch to the same thing that happened in Elijah. And if you've been with us recently, you'll know on Sunday mornings we just completed a study about Elijah. How did Elijah go? Well, after he completed handing off his mantle to his disciple, to his pupil Elisha, he gets taken up in a chariot of fire. He never is said to have experienced death, but entered straight into heaven. So Josephus is saying, well, pretty much the exact same thing happened to Enoch. Another source that I'll get into is Philo. So Philo was a Jewish, histor a Jewish theologian. He lived in Alexandria, Egypt around this time period as well. 
Uh, Philo is just as important as Josephus, because whereas Josephus is very much our key to what is the history of the Jewish people, Philo is our example as to what's the belief system of the Jewish people in that time period. He is also incredibly, incredibly dry. I just about can't read what he's writing here, and this is after translating it and finding the cleanest version, but I'll try to get through it here. Which is given respect to Enoch proves this, quote, Enoch pleased God and was not found. Since he is said to have been translated, the meaning of which expression is that it immigrated and departed from its sojourn in this mortal life to an abode in immortal life. And if you've never read a theology, theology text, that's pretty much all they are, is stuff like that. Um, but the short answer is, he said he was taken up and did not die. He just said it in the most convoluted, scholarly way you can imagine. Pretty much imagine how, what would be the craziest way I personally would say something, and that's pretty much all Philo does. But the point remains, these were common thoughts around this time period. Another thing I'll say about him is he's kind of a legendary character in this time period. Simply because we know so little about him. Don't we just love good mysteries as people? Don't we just love to see things we can't really understand? We try to explain things we can't really get our heads around. Well, Enoch is the same way. Because here's this character mentioned in the Jewish scriptures, in the creation account, or fo immediately following the creation, but we don't really know anything about him. Well, this caused him to be kind of mysterious. And of course, like anything else, mystery equals interesting. The more mysterious, the more strange, the more we don't really understand, the more we love to piece together our own little ideas about what happened. Our own little ideas as to how to fill in the blanks we just don't have answers to. Well, no more different back then than it was for us. So we know specifically by the time of Qumran, fantastical stories surrounding Enoch had been created. Uh, we actually have four different books that have the title Enoch to them. Now, they're all fake in the sense that we know they weren't actually written by Enoch. They were written much later. We don't have them in our scriptures for that very reason. But there were still people that read them. There were still people that used them. These were things that were known. And they came about because Enoch didn't die. Enoch was taken straight into heaven. And so these people kind of began to think maybe this guy got a behind-the-scenes tour of the universe. And so when you read through the Enoch text, it's called the Enochic literature, you start to see kind of how the universe works stories. Uh, I'm not going to get into a lot of detail here because honestly, unless you're a history language nerd like me, you're probably going to find it really not that important. And like I said, it's not even really scripture. It's not anything we need to be concerned about. It's just how people were trying to answer the questions of how does the universe work? How did God kind of spin this whole thing into creation? 
Kind of the same questions we ask today when you think about it. How many specials out there are how the universe got created? How many documentaries are there in this world trying to explain from either a creationist standpoint or a completely secular scientific standpoint how the universe works? Well, people in the first century weren't any different. They just had a fantastical, mysterious character to wrap around it. So he was a righteous man, he walked with God, he did not die, he was a fascinating figure, and finally, I believe Enoch is here, and this is the main reason Enoch is here, is Enoch simply pleased God. How do we know this? It flat out tells us several times. In fact, the very end of Hebrews 11.5 is simply this. Prior to his transformation, he was approved for having pleased God. Another thing I can say is no matter what Enoch did, we know he was faithful. Why else would he be in the so-called Hall of Fame of Faith of the Old Testament if he wasn't in some way faithful to God? I think this is, again, the ultimate answer. He pleased God, and he pleased God because he was faithful. So what can we learn? Oh yeah, final thing. He sought God. He sought God, and we know he found God because he walked with him. No matter what else we can say about this person, no matter what else we can impose upon ourselves with this, we know he did these things. So what can we learn? First off, the first thing I really think we can learn from Enoch is this. Faith has to come first in our lives. No matter what else happens, no matter what else we do, no matter what else we believe, faith is our first priority. For no other reason than as verse 6 tells us, we cannot please God without faith. But why can't we please God without faith? besides just the fact that the Bible tells us that. Well, I'll give you two pretty much logical things if you really sit down and think about it. So first, why are you going to try to please a God you don't believe is real? If you don't believe God is real, are you going to try to please him? Now, I can't speak for the rest of you, but I can't remember the last time I sacrificed a ball or made an offering to Asherah. I've probably never praised Ra, the sun god. I've never, at least not unjokingly, prayed to Father Odin. That said, I do watch the Thor movies, so I've probably made that joke once or twice. I don't acknowledge Thor except as a decent movie series and a comic book. 
And I do this because I don't believe these p- things are real. These, I have no faith in these deities. But I do try to please God because I do know he's real. Furthermore, we can't see God. We can see his evidence of him around us. We can see the things he does in our lives. We can see all the little things that prove God is there to us. But I've never looked God in the face. And so I've got to have a measure of faith to believe he's there. I can simply accept all the things that have happened in my life to this point as mere coincidence or cause and effect from other things. Or I can do what I've chosen to do and say, this is God's hand on my life. I can point through a chain of events that have led me to me standing here at this very moment preaching this sermon. And I choose to make that choice. So, just as a bit of evidence of this, just look a little bit further in the book of Hebrews. 11.27, we see, By faith Moses left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, Pharaoh. For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. It flat out says Moses was able to cross the wilderness, survive 40 years of pure agony with a bunch of people who did not want to be there, simply because he acted as though he could see God. He believed what he was doing was right. But faith that God is real is not enough. Simply acknowledging that you believe there is a God up there is not enough. In fact, we have a term for that. It's called agnosticism. It means that while you believe there is a God, you don't necessarily believe it's the God as described in the Bible. But you believe there's a God. But can we all agree that's not enough to save you? Look at James. Probably one of the most significantly known passages from the book of James is 2.19. You believe that God is one. Congrats, you do well. You know what? Even the demons believe that and tremble. Belief in God is not enough. Simply believing that there is a God, I should say, is not enough. You got to father, furthermore, follow God's commands. Faith in Jesus is enough. That is a command. Once you have that faith, follow the pro- following the prod of the Holy Spirit, trusting in His Word, fellowshipping, reading, studying, doing life together. These are all things that make a difference. They are all commands. Faith itself is a command. So Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Again, just believing God is real is not enough. But why else must must faith come first? 
Well, the second answer I'll give to that is this. It's foolish to seek the approval of a God you do not believe will reward good and punish evil. So it's not merely enough to believe that God is real. That's a starting point. Because again, we're not going to try to please something we don't believe exists. But second, you're not going to try to please somebody you don't think is going to care. I don't have it listed here, and I can't honestly remember exactly where it is, but there is a parable, and I literally just came to my mind, so I did not have this pre-planned, that it says, if a son comes to you and asks you for an egg, do you give him a scorpion? If you ask him for bread, do you give him this? We trust God to provide for us. We trust him not to punish us without due cause. So let's look at Ecclesiastes. For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. Now, of course, being Ecclesiastes, this is vanity and striving after the wind. But the point is, God rewards those who do good. And so I'll ask the question, why would you try to please a God who doles out favor and punishment on arbitrary whims? Now, it's not to say God is not God. God can do whatever God wants. But part of God's character is that he does not punish unnecessarily. Now, all punishment is due us because we're sinners. But nothing we do changes the fact that, well, that's exactly the opposite point I'm trying to make. God does things with a purpose. God is not random. God is a God of order. So the two points I want to make here is God is real and God is just. These are reasons we should trust in him. These are reasons we should strive to please him, and we do so by faith. So let's tie this back to our boy Enoch. How does all of this tie together? Well, by faith, Enoch walked with God. And for that reason, he was rewarded. Now, when we look at this passage, what's our inclination? What do we believe his reward was? Well, if you take it at face value, his reward was avoiding death. But I'll argue another point. I don't think that was his reward. Because if he was a faithful follower of God, if he was a believer, as it says he was, was death really that big a deal? I mean, unless it was just a painful or agonizing death, that's not that big a deal. Because we'll go to see the Father eventually. We know where we're going. No, my idea is a little more radical. Enoch's reward was the fact that he was able to walk with God. That he saw God before entering heaven. That upon this earth, he was in God's presence. 
So no matter what else he did, no matter what else we know about him, his reward was God himself. So pleasing God, seeking after him, doing whatever we can to be in his presence means we're going to find him. If we honestly seek after God, he will find a way to get us to him. And I think we see that no matter where we go. And so I believe the beauty of his Enoch story is this. God not only is the one dealing out the rewards. God is not only the person up there rewarding us for good and punishing us for evil. More importantly, God himself is the reward. Being in his presence, living our lives in such a way that we feel him all the time. And how much more for us on this side of the cross is that true? Enoch did not have the presence of the Holy Spirit in his life. But for every believer sitting on this planet today, we do. We walk with God all the time and we don't even realize it. How much greater can we get this side of heaven? Our prize, our goal, the thing we strive for is to spend eternity in heaven. And that blot of sin on our soul no longer mattering in the least. Now we get a taste of that here with the Holy Spirit, but imagine how much greater it's going to be when we're up there with him. When we get to actually look God in the face. We get to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. That is our prize. That is our goal. But I think Enoch's got one other thing to tell us. And I want this to end on this because I want it to be encouraging. Enoch tells us this. No matter who does or does not know your story, God knows. And he cares about it more than anybody else ever could. And as little as we know about Enoch, we know Enoch. How many millions of people have lived their life on this earth in faithful service to God that none of us will ever know the name of? Yet, by his faith, by his lineage, by God's will, we know this man's name. But the greater part of this story is those countless thousands, millions of people that we don't know, they're still known by God. And everybody in this room here is as well. So let's pray. Father, thank you for letting us know what little bit we do about this man, Enoch. And more importantly, thank you for what his story tells us. Thank you for what we can do in our lives, knowing we have your power, we have your love, and we have you as the reward we're striving for. No matter what this life brings to us, no matter what our story looks like, we know you care. We know you're the hand guiding it. And we know no matter what we do, your name is going to be the one glorified at the end of the day. We ask all this in your amazing, wonderful name. Amen. Thank you all. We'll see you later.